Welcome back to Shop Talk. I'm Steve Ferreira. Today I am joined by my first guest who does not cut hair. I have run out of barbers and hairstylists to talk to, so I had to get one of my friends from real life to come on and humor me. His name is Ed. He is a filmmaker, a director, a producer, a music man. He has a strange day job that I don't quite understand, and he's been my friend for a long time. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I am doing well in this uh, coronavirus hellscape. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're in Baltimore, and you filled me in on an interesting headline the other day that I've shared with a few people, which was that the, uh, you, know, you know where I'm going with no. The mayor asked people to stop shooting each other so that people who have the coronavirus can go to the hospital. Yeah. He specifically yeah, said if people don't stop shooting each other, he's going to force them to, as if he's going to take action against people for murdering each other. <laughs> sounds like a threat, like the mayor is going to go out and shoot you if you shoot someone. I guess. Does that sound right? I guess. I, uh, I mean, the preposterous thing is if you could just stop people from murdering each other, you'd go do it, right? As the mayor? Yeah. I mean, realistically, just show up and shut it down. <laughs> what he's threatening. So, you know, it's funny because you've lived in Baltimore. How many years have you been in Baltimore now? We've been here about seven track. years. Seven years, all right. So I think like the first year or the second time I was slated to come down, I came down right after you moved in. And then my next trip was either that spring or the following spring because you moved in in like August. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Right. And I remember you were up here and I drove down to Baltimore with you and then I flew back. And that was a very quick trip. And my initial reaction to the city was, wow, wow. Uh, Good to see my friends, but I would never come here if they didn't live here. Because you were living in a, in a kind of a nice area, which was cool, but you hadn't really figured out like where to go yet. I came back a little while later, and you had the place figured out. And I was like, oh, the city's actually pretty sick. Yeah, so but when we moved to the city, we had a day and a half to figure out where we wanted to live. We were living in Tampa, Florida at the time. We flew up. Uh, my girlfriend, Kelly, had just gotten into a grad school at Hopkins. So we flew up for a weekend. And we basically had uh, Saturday and part of Sunday to figure out where we were going to live. So we just, we didn't know the city at all. We just showed up downtown and we walked around until we found the neighborhood we liked. The only thing we were really looking for, because we knew we were going to be busy, is uh, plenty of places to eat and drink. So we ended up in Fells Point, which is a super touristy location. There's probably 20 or 30 restaurants within a three block radius and uh, just as many bars. We stayed in that area until she finished grad school and then we couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you're surrounded by bars and restaurants, but all of the people that live there moved in there in the 70s or 60s. So they're all old retirees who bought their houses when they were 20 grand. They're now valued at like 400 grand and they won't get the fuck out. And all they do is complain about all the bars and restaurants that have been there since they moved in. It's annoying as fuck living out there. <laughs> so we moved into a regular neighborhood. It's not a uh, upper class. It's not lower class, just kind of a nice mix of people. So I like that neighborhood. Your original apartment was pretty sick. You had like three stores. Yeah. You had that dive bar. I want to say it was called like Duda's. Duda's, like yeah. That. Yeah, that place was great. And then not in your neighborhood, but not far from there is my favorite Baltimore bar, Warfrat. <laughs> Warfrat's fun because uh, I think uh, the first two seasons of uh, Homicide Life on the Street, that was their hangout on that show. I didn't know Yeah, that. it literally looks like exactly it. the same as it did when they were filming the show there. Although, when you're watching the uh, show, it's like a crab restaurant, and uh, I'm assuming it never was that. I, I think they just faked it, but they're always sitting down and they're eating crabs, but really, right. it's just a dive bar with some uh, pizza, maybe some chicken fingers i think Warfare they have one pizza oven that fits one pizza <laughs> i think you're right about that have you been back there since the last time uh we've been, we've been back there a couple times uh you know the best thing about that place was uh during a winter storm they'd stay open a lot of the bars in that neighborhood would stay open yeah no matter how much snow we got in the back of that bar they have a huge fireplace it was a good spot to go and just get shit-faced until uh until the snow melted it's a little slice of heaven what else do you love about the city that reads ball Baltimore, Maryland. You know, the most unique thing here, and uh, just so people understand, I've lived in uh, Boston, Mass., Providence, Rhode Island. I've lived in Tampa, Florida, and now Baltimore, Maryland. Of all those cities, I think Baltimore has the most thriving art scene and art community. I, I think what a city needs to, to really maintain a decent art scene is, is two things. I think you have to have a lot of cheap buildings for people to do art in and to display art kind of give people a home to make it but then you also need fuck i don't even know 
how to describe it. The grit? Yeah, like the grit keeps the prices low as a town tends to get a better reputation for having, you know, lots of shows. There's there's tons of theater here. There's there's tons of uh, art shows. There There's all kinds of weird uh, flea market type things. And it's, it's just, there's constantly art stuff going on in the city. All the neighborhoods are constantly running festivals. But the problem is when people figure that shit out, they might move to the city. And I think there's a threshold where when too many people move to the city the artists can't afford it anymore and they need to leave yeah we we've seen that you know and we've seen and we've we've definitely seen it in new york city like williamsburg lower east side like we've we've seen this yeah so i mean artists in new york really live in uh, northern new jersey now right you know i don't know because actually hoboken and jersey city are very nice well a lot of it you know and then a lot of it's still pretty pretty gritty too but um yeah i would imagine that maybe they've moved there they've moved to maybe the bronx or parts of queens because like brooklyn just seems like it's completely unattainable i mean i know people were pushing the williamsburg thing into greenpoint and bushwick and it, it's such bullshit because they were calling uh oh god they were calling bushwick like east williamsburg for a while <laughs> and it's like no this is this is bushwick so they, they force it you know it's it's the same yeah. thing maybe- i mean i never would have thought that south boston would have been like crawling with like yuppie post grads right. And now here we are, you know, and it's New like, York's interesting, though, you know. because it, it has a lot of expensive art, yeah. or, you know, expensive contemporary art, um, a lot of film and television taking place there. But it's all very elite. I think I feel like if you're a starving artist in New York, you're you're mostly going to starve. Uh- <laughs> yeah, unless you're unless you're getting bankrolled by your parents. Right. right. <laughs> and let's, let's be honest, you know, I mean, that is a thing. But, you know. Yeah. And, and good for those people. <laughs> Good for those people. I wish, you know, in the in the age of the coronavirus, I, I wish I was being bankrolled by my parents. But, you know, here I am trying to figure out when my unemployment check's going to come. Hey, um, while, uh, while, while on the topic, I was thinking about uh, yeah. barbering today. Um, you know, when this whole uh, quarantine business ends, I think what we're going to see is I think haircuts are going to be like a uh, an extremely valuable social currency because you're going to have this thawing where everyone starts leaving that houses a lot of people need work a lot of people need to get laid you know before this quarantine it was all right to walk around looking like uh you hadn't gotten a haircut or shaved in you know 10 years but i think the look of being clean cut when this is all said and done is going to mean you have a decent enough existence to afford a haircut i'm not saying that people should prioritize a haircut over other things but if you're looking for a job or looking to get back on your feet when this thing is over uh i would definitely go to the barber first uh, i would be as clean cut as possible because the majority of people are going to look like shit that's interesting i actually hadn't thought about it from that point of view i had been looking at it more from what the first two months going to look like before things things will get back to normal this isn't the Great oh, yeah. depression or the 2000 even the 2008 crash yeah. i think by and large you know, once this dies down, we'll we'll be back to normal within a span of three to four months. And, you know, I anticipate that when I'm back in the barbershop, the first two weeks are going to be jam-packed. Everybody, it's going to be like when you open a brand new barbershop and everybody's so excited because one, people are like, dude, I got ear hair. <laughs> eyebrows are looking crazy i need a haircut i need my beard done i know i'm gonna screw it up if i don't go to my guy so there's gonna be that but then there's gonna be also a lot of people who didn't think ahead of time to book that appointment in advance and then i hadn't even looked at it from the perspective of a haircut is gonna be a value well, i mean if you're currency the majority of people are gonna come out of this more broke than they went into it a 30 dollars yeah. haircut isn't something that's gonna necessarily break your bank maybe it is maybe it'll get down to nothing but I think spending your first $30 on a haircut may actually get you to rebound a hell of a lot faster than going out trying to whatever you're into, you know, whether it's whether it's a job, whether it's there's a lot of single people cooped up right now. The nightlife's going to be insane. Um, I, feel, <laughs> I feel like oh, bars yeah. are going to be crazy when this is over. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing, too, is we haven't gotten a lot of guidance so far as to how we're going to proceed when we come out of this. Right. So we know we're going to come out of this at some point. But what I'm not hearing is any recommendations for, hey, you can open your barbershop up, but you can only have 10 people in there at a time. So you got five people working and then you got five guests. 
So you, so potentially you could have five people in the chairs. I'll put you at 10 people right there. But what about the people that come in 15 minutes early waiting for their appointment? Or if you're a walk-in shop, what do you do then? So we haven't gotten any type of recommendation. So I can't imagine that we're going to go from don't have more than 10 people over. Don't stay, avoid dwell, uh, dwellings of more than 10 people at a time to nightclubs in the casino are back right. open. Uh, well, the virus is going to, you know, it's going to continue to circulate at a low level. So yeah, yes. there'll, there'll be, there'll be plenty of encouragement to not be in large groups. I'm sure everywhere that deals uh, with sanitary conditions is, is going to have to have uh, heightened standards for a while. And then, um, you know, the same thing with uh, just meeting with people. So I feel like a lot of people that are teleworking right now that can do 100% of their job with no impact, no negative impact to it. I feel like they may end up teleworking straight into 2021 just I because agree. there's no there's no that. value in rushing everybody back to the offices just to go through this again. Well, there's a good chance that those companies, that people that have proven to be successful at teleworking in this period that their companies just might not have them back at all. Well, that's another thing, right? Is, uh, you know, offices are expensive. And if you if you do this test and you you come out of it going, you know, our productivity didn't didn't really drop aside from, you know, the global slowing. Why would you want to go back to investing in that office? You know, yeah. It's cheaper to have all of your employees just remote. Yeah. But at the same time, I know there's a lot of companies that prefer to have their workforce in-house, um, both for collaborative reasons and to make sure things are on track. Oh, I, it holds you accountable. As a barber, I'll tell you one thing that's really helped the hair industry in the past couple of years is the amount of people that can work from home. So you don't have to worry about like if you if you are a barber and you start thinking smart and you start mapping it out, not like, um, oh, I can screw off in the beginning of the week because I know Friday and Saturday are going to be busy. What you start looking at it is how do I get these guys who work from home or have flexible office schedules to get into my chair during the day. And that's the way that I became successful behind the chair was because I started to attract a clientele that had flexible schedules. A lot of sales guys, as long as they're putting their numbers in, they're kind of free to do what they want to do. So you're in tech sales. If your barbershop's in the proximity of to where people are doing tech sales, you can get people in at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. And they're right. actually going to prefer to come because they don't have to deal with the headache of coming on a Saturday. Even if they have an appointment, it's a busier environment. And they're like, that's one last thing I need to do. I I can move this call to three o'clock and I can go get my hair cut at one thirty and know that I'm going to be out of there. So, so I think that is another way that people that are in industries like the one that I'm in when I'm not podcasting could actually end up getting ahead. What's going to be worse? The people that say, I'm just going to go Wolfman for seven weeks while I'm on this uncertain, weird coronavirus break or the people that cut their own hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to be an interesting time. How has the uh, coronavirus affected you? Uh, Pretty minimally, aside from being home all the time. That's not crazy because I was doing mostly telework from the beginning. I am going through, uh, you know, there's some some unpaid time off from work, but it's it's very minimal. But I mean, they're they're doing it so they don't have to lay people off. So it's, it, you know, it's understandable, the strategy. Right. And, you know, I don't mind losing a little bit of money for that kind of security. I don't complain about it or anything like that. But overall, I mean, aside from the way it's affecting everybody, just being inside a lot, uh, not being able to go out. I mean, I haven't eaten in a restaurant in a month and a half. So that's that's crazy for us. It's been an interesting thing because we've pretty much said, all right, listen, we're both full time in the hair industry, so we're not making any money right now. At some point, hopefully the CARES Act kicks in and we get our uh, like a nice retroactive check dating back to the day that we closed our shop. So for us, we had a little bit of cash on hand, which has been nice. But, you know, we've been cooking 90 percent of our meals at home. And then like twice a week, we've either we've been going out for coffee and then like twice a week we've been getting takeout. And it's good because that breaks the monotony a little bit. It's a little something to look forward to. But the other part of it is, as someone who relies on people passing their, it's like a secondary economy. I make my income based off of you making your income and then coming in and buying a service from me. So I feel almost a little bit of a responsibility to try to continue to circulate a little bit of my income in the same way back to people that are in similar situations to me. These restaurants are staying open and I'm sure they're almost operating at a loss right now because a lot a lot of them can't sell booze. They can't open up and seat a lot of people. They're just doing takeout. It's one person in, one person out at a time. So I'm doing my best, but at the same time, I also can't. I'm not in a. I'm not in a position where I can overextend myself. I, I think you that's. I, mean? I think that's what a lot of people are going through. You know, unless you have a lot of money in the bank, there's already shortfalls, and then there's a a very high level of uncertainty, right? So. Mm -hmm. 
it's not, you know, I don't have money today to do this or support these people. But you also have to think, well, what if this thing turns out to be even worse than we're thinking now? You know, what is the long term there? So it's it's kind of like as soon as we start getting back to some level of normalcy, I expect a lot of people to be a lot more generous than they are now. But I understand people's reluctance to, you know, go out and splurge at a time where even comfortable jobs are are seeing problems. You know, it's funny is this this episode at this point in this conversation is so apropos i might end up bumping this one up and releasing it ahead of schedule because uh i don't want people to hear this a month from now i <laughs> ache on a, a when, every, when everybody got their trump bucks and are floating on, on oh yeah fucking yeah. cruise liner we need those we need those trump bucks <laughs> floating <laughs> floating on a cruise liner hanging out at the buffet licking other I'm, people's hands uh i'm gonna say <laughs> At the, at the risk of alienating potential sponsors down the line or fans that live in different parts of the country. But the Trump bucks thing is, is kind of bewildering to me. And, it, and I understand the gesture of it. And it, I think I, I might have been the first person to call it Trump bucks. I'm sure other people are calling it Trump. <laughs> yeah, the first I the person first. I heard call it Trump bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want my Trump bucks. Um, <laughs> I live in one of the most fucking expensive entire country. $1,200 doesn't pay my rent. No. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, cool. Thanks for paying our car notes and the car insurance for the Yeah. $1,200, I would imagine, in rural Oklahoma is like hitting the lottery. So, like, I work in a barbershop, so it's comedy. You know, you know, it's comedy all day. Like, but part of it, like, kind of like a you know, rule in the barbershop is people are supposed to be able to come in and have fun. So we got to kind of stay up on what's going on. But at the same time, we're kind of making light of everything. And when I heard about this, the coronavirus, we've been hearing about it since the beginning of the year. I uh, literally have to go back and I'm eating my words right now because I have a couple of clients. I remember I had one client who's a really smart guy who's in the pharmacy industry who was very concerned when he came in. And I, I looked at him and I said, man, you know, I have good faith in the people that are in charge of getting ahead of this type of things. Like, you know, the CDC and the WHO is like, these guys know what they're doing. And I said, you know, there's only 11 airports right now that are taking inbound flights to the United States from China and they're screening every single person that gets off. Like, I was like, yeah, it's going to spread, but I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. They're going to, the you know, the, the president administration is going to take this seriously and do the right thing and make sure that this doesn't get to a pandemic level in the United States. And I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong about that. I was wrong. And it's a bummer as a person who goes out and votes and doesn't really get butt hurt when their candidate doesn't win to see the person who you were like, yo, I really don't want this guy to be the president. Not during an emergency. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I felt this entire presidency, like Trump was on borrowed time before something bad oh happened. yeah i was like you know i felt i felt the whole time like at some point like this dude's luck is gonna is gonna run out and he's gonna drop the ball and i didn't know when it was gonna be and i was i was thinking is he gonna get impeached you know and then and then that didn't happen and you know like there's so many different things that you know like just the him the back and forth with north korea right. you know the all the russia stuff this that you know everything steve bannon all these clowns he had in, in his administration that kind of came and went and i was like when what is when is this going to happen are we going to get bombed you know are we going to get is there going to be another 9-11 and lo and behold it's this and, it, and it's crazy because we're old enough to remember 9-11 because i think we were like 1920 or if it was 9-11 we would have been 20 years old because we were both born in 81 so i was going back to college and i remember having a fucked up week because Northeastern went back later than all the other colleges and I was still home so I would kind of link up with some of my friends who were going to local places or just work and I probably hung out with you a little and um, I remember just being like wow this is kind of screwed up but to be honest with you being so young it didn't really affect me in the way that anyone that's in the workforce right now is totally fucked like we're, we're all no one's working right now and nine eleven, if you had a job you might have still gone back to work the week after that happened or, or whatever it wasn't you know it was a devastating thing that happened, but it wasn't like this thing where the whole U.S. economy just stopped for eight weeks. Well, it did, know, yeah, it didn't impact every single state, right? That's so true, too. It didn't sweep across the country. I mean, people are upset about it, but if you talk to someone from the other side of the country during that time, you know, they say, well, that's something that happened in New York, and they were emotionally, you know, horrified and disturbed by it um, and angry and everything else, but there wasn't that same level of connection, right? 
Yeah. So yeah. being in the Northeast, having been to New York a handful of times, uh, we were pretty young. What were we, 20-something? We were, um, we were 20 because if it was nine, you know, if it was 2001, we were born in 81. So we would have been right. 20. So a little bit more personal. But yeah, this this is totally different. This impacts everywhere. And I, I think, you know, what's really uh, crazy about this is the way it swept every country. I really don't think we could have stopped it from being a pandemic in this country or an epidemic in this country country right <laughs> whatever the phrasing is on that but certainly the uh the insane high mortality rates and the lack of federal response to anything that i think that's the stuff where we're going to look back and go this president and this administration was atrocious with this stuff yeah um i think any president i feel like this virus it it just spread like crazy right now authoritarian countries out there that could clamp down their populations real quick and do it with force obviously they had the best uh rate of return on that right obviously you can't do that here but there could have been more federal engagement when trump said he was going to reopen the economy i was like the guy never shut it down you know governor <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he never he's never the one that shut it down to begin with you're absolutely governors right. and mayors and and everyone did it on a local level and you know even today there's states that aren't on lockdown and they're they're not even thinking about locking down they said their citizens just seem to be doing it on their own yeah. they're doing it out of fear so it's like you know companies don't want their people getting sick because then you permanently lose productivity or for an extended period of time so a lot of companies said work from home until this thing's squashed and you know the other people are just terrified and they won't leave their houses but there's still states where there's no lockdown orders people just did it on their own and to me that's a shame because that's where you get Mardi Gras still happened. That's where you get spring break still happened all over yeah. the place. Spring breakers went out and partied and brought that stuff back when none of that should have been allowed. It's just, it's one of those things like you don't want a lot of federal locking down of things or movement rights. You want people to move about the country free and everything, but the only group of people that could have uniformly dictated better measures for this would have been the federal government and they didn't do anything. So I think in hindsight, we're going to see that we fared a lot worse than any other country because we had no national strategy. Yeah, so. I, I would agree with that 100%. You got to think about the fact that it's all been done at state level. Think about how many older folks go down to Florida for the winter and then are starting to come back this time of the year. It's April, it's March, April. So a lot of those people have been down there since November. This is the time when they start coming back. And then this is also a time of the year when a lot of families start taking vacations from Disney. So right. how hard is it for Charlie Baker in Massachusetts to communicate with whoever the governor is in Florida to get a strategy for what are we doing about all the traveling? All these states that dump into Florida in April and all the older folks that are leaving Florida and coming back up north. At a state level, that is damn near impossible to coordinate. Right. So we, we really needed a little bit more of a response at the federal level. I mean, and I think they could have gotten ahead of it, but they were too busy trying to keep the economy strong. Because right. that's really the only leg that this president has to stand on as a good economy. And then you could really argue back to how much of that is, was done by him and how much of that was the result of a successful previous administration. Well, I mean, um, you can look at charts. I think uh, saying we're going to take the wheels off this and let people do whatever they want, stock market wise, we're not going to crack down on anything. I think taking those wheels off definitely uh, spurred some some growth. But I think it's minimal, and that's the type of growth that scares me because it's not. I don't want to. I don't want a big spike in the in the marketplace, right? I, right. That, that does me no good. I want nice, gradual, consistent growth or development, long lasting investments, right? Not stuff that's going to burn up and, and be gone like any number of the bubbles we've had over and over again. I think we've covered the coronavirus. Yeah, that, that's beaten to death. Yeah, we we have. Been beat it to death. I just, um, I'm ready to go back to work. I'm ready to go back. I want to talk to you about some of your endeavors outside of work. Cause let's face it, man, works for jerks. <laughs> um, works how we pay to <laughs> do all the other things we like. Right. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. I, I do like cutting hair. I, I, I would say I actually love cutting hair because I love to draw and it's, um, I like to do stuff with my hands and it's kind of the ultimate thing. Cause you're kind of drawing on somebody's head. So it's really fun. Yeah. Um, Barbara is an artist like that concept it blows my mind i don't know how new it is i don't know the history of, of barbering but i i think that's amazing that like yeah I think you now have I barbers think out there that are treating it like this is an art form and you see it in their work and yeah. i mean 
that's who you want cutting your hair. But it, it blows my mind that, you know, when I was a kid, the, the barber used to chain smoke cigarettes and you'd be lucky if you didn't ash in your hair. You know what I mean? And it'd be him and his buddy and they'd just be, you know, talking about sports or women or whatever. And uh, those guys didn't give a fuck what your head looked like when they were done. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, in, in my experience growing up before I was cutting hair, and at some point I'm going to have to get some super OG barbers, like guys that have been like in this game. I want to talk to some people that have been in this game for like 20, 30 years or whatever. But I would have to say, if you went into, you know, like an African-American barbershop, you would have seen some artistry always. I don't feel like it ever let off in um, African-American and Hispanic barbershops. You always, always just had the reputation for the cleanest lines and the most beautiful blends and just like perfect manicured work. You know, I, I don't know if referring to themselves as artists and I'm an artist and all this and that. I don't know if that is a newer thing because I've only been a barber for seven years. I like to look at it as a craft. There's definitely an artistic side to it. It is considered a trade, but it's not a trade in the way that an electrician is a trade. You know, Well, I mean, uh, the film industry is a series of trades. Exactly. It was trades before it was anything else. I mean, that's why it's all unionized. It, it, it was all trades. Yeah. You know, unions and barbers is another interesting thing because since we've had this whole fiasco with barbers being out of business and by and large, uh, most of us cannot really collect until the CARES Act kicks in. I've seen different barbers and I've seen some shop owners and guys that I'm friends with say, hey, we need a union. I want to start a union. And now the interesting thing is if there was almost a union for barbers and hairstylists, the people who would be the best qualified to run it would be the owners. But really the people who couldn't be in the union would be the owners. It would be more advocating on the rights of the people who just work at a shop but don't own it so that's interesting because most barbershops are very small companies right very small uh, a lot of people rent their own chairs work pretty much as contractors yes or subcontractors. Yeah, either or and right you know the, the interesting thing is, is you're kind of self-employed you, you have to also work under the confines of a shop so right. unless you own the shop you know are you really self-employed is an argument that people make and then there's another argument because people like to call themselves shop owners but unless you own the building that you're operating out of are you really an owner or right. are you like you know so there's a lot of ins and outs to it and then it's like, it's weird it's weird to unionize in that type of thing like all right if uh if you work for supercuts it makes sense to unionize because everyone's getting paid the same and you're all make the same haircuts right right but in uh in barber shops and small barber shops or whatever if you're really good and uh you have to charge 20 bucks for a haircut and you go i'm gonna start charging 30 or else i'm gonna leave here if you're good enough i mean why would anyone in their right mind stop you right right you know what i mean um, you know, and the funny thing is, is that there are people that will tell you don't do that. A lot of a lot of shop owners are getting a, a steady stream of income off their shops. They don't really, they get stuck into a, uh, a train of thought of, well, I'm making this much money right now. I just raised my prices two years ago. I'll go up another $2 in another two years. Because right. what they're afraid of is a mass exodus of clients because one or two people want to raise their price. But right. it, I'll tell you right now, the best, the best like thing you can do is raise your prices very small increments every year. That's the best thing you can do. Yep. Because you'll you'll find yourself where you're like, I got to raise prices by, you know, 10%, where really it would have been easier if just you raised it 3% over a few years. You know? I agree with that 100%. That's actually been kind of my business model. And I... And it's, and it's worked for me and I've been able to maintain a lot of my clientele because you're going to lose clients no matter what. After, after a certain time, somebody might just go to a new barber. You might not have even have done anything. Right. There might be no reason, but at some point they just say, well, time for a new barber. Right. You know, I mean, that's, that's fine. That's the way it is. If you, you know, if you're a guy and you've broken up, you dated a girl for two, three years, and then you broke up with her, you can't be mad when some guy who's been, you've been cutting his hair for two, three years, just up and leaves too. You, you know, like I, I understand I'm not out here to sticker shock anybody or just gouge people on the price. But I mean, I do think that in terms of something that you need to get every, you know, three to five weeks, I don't understand why the price historically in, in barbershops and salons, for the most part, has been so low. Unless you're, well, you know, I think you a... need your, I think you need your neighborhood shops, right? That's that's like the ones I grew up with, where the where the guy, <laughs> where the guys just do whatever the hell they want, and they don't really care what you're asking for. They're just gonna hammer out the same haircut they just gave, you know, a thousand other people. They don't care. It's more of a trade than a craft, right? Uh, they they don't so much care about putting any any of themselves into their work, right? And I think those places are important because you know there's people that 
can't afford a good haircut or whatever, they still need to look good. Those haircuts will at least get you looking normal. They should um, still be 30 bucks, though, in my opinion, even for that kind of subpar service. And I think it should go up from there. Well, it depends where they're at and, and everything else. Yeah. I still think if you're in a city, 30 bucks is dirt cheap for a haircut. I paid $80 for my first haircut in this city. It was from a salon across the street from my house. I was like, man, I, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I get, I get it. After a certain point, it just gets a little unrealistic. But I think, uh, I think pricing on haircuts is—it's, it's, you know, it's a funny thing. We could talk about it for another two hours. But what I want to talk about is you. Oh, oh right, right, right. I'm your guest. Yeah, you're, you're my—you know. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm sorry for the shop talk. <laughs> yeah, shop talk. I have to change the name of this podcast. I was trying to find your podcast earlier today, and I, I just was curious. There's a handful of other shop talks. I know normally people would tell you to find an original name, but I'm gonna recommend right here and now you need to go to those other people and tell them they got to change their name every single one of them every one by one send them a cease and desist yeah. <laughs> i i think i've got it i think i should be the one that has shop talk you know i think oh yeah well the whole the whole thing is, is this is a trick podcast because it's a it's a barber podcast there's a razor on the on the cover in a barber pole color and yet um here we are not actually talking about hair pricing and strategies behind building a barbershop this is not a hair podcast i'm not gonna bring anybody on here and ask them who their top five favorite barbers or hairdressers are you know I'm, i don't not care about the techniques they use when you when you cut hair you can do well, that let me ask you let me ask you one hair question and then we'll move on okay you're gonna okay thank you ask Kelly, yeah, this is actual hair, right? So this is like hair science. We'll see. We'll see how you do. Kelly likes to uh, pull hairs out of my face. Yeah, um, pruning or whatever, whatever primates do in the wild. Uh, she likes to get into that. She'll pull out my beard hairs from where they don't belong. And what blows her mind is when she pulls one out, it looks like it's super thick, but it's really like six hairs. Yeah. Like she'll like separate it. Yeah. But it's all coming out of one hole. Yeah. What's that all about? Do you get ingrowns? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just you got a lot of hair. You got to use a, uh, is she using a tweezer at least when she does this? Yeah. Yeah. Always a tweezer. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) some people have thick facial hair. You're not the first person I've heard about that. She goes looking for pimples and, and, hairs growing out of my ears or whatever you know oh you know what i think you should do is you should shave clean and go spend a couple bucks and get a good facial yeah at a, at a really good esthetician because she'll help you with that type of stuff because they'll get they'll clean up your skin get some of that dead skin off and then you'll probably have healthier hair growth on your face it sounds like your skin's probably dry or irritated if she's pulling out tons of hairs and you got irritated hairs <laughs> all over the place. It sounds like i think it you sounds need like to- someone who doesn't care about their face whatsoever yeah you need the help of a good esthetician and it also sounds like I had to bet when you shave, you're probably just dragging a razor across your face without any type of prep work. Yeah, just uh, some shaving cream. Yeah, so you know you gotta you gotta turn it into a little bit more of a ritual for the guys that hold that that shave, and you need to warm up the skin with some steam or some hot water. Use a little pre-shave oil. Well, not, yeah, I usually shave you know. after a shower. So, well, that's that's start. But I mean, I, we can go over. The <laughs> You're we'll talk also, about it later. Yeah, you're also almost 40 <laughs> years old. You should probably get a little bit of a skincare routine going, which I would recommend probably just stealing your girlfriend's stuff, which is a good way for a lot of guys to start. Did you get away with then, that? Uh, well, I don't need to. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie to you. A couple of years ago, Aaron looked at me and said, you should probably start using an under eye cream. And I, and I started using one. But we carry all that stuff at the shop. We have Baxter, California. We have a full line, hair and skin, as well as other products from Orojo. But So I have great quality skincare products. And I use a couple of them every day on my face. I think it helps out. And I think guys should probably use sunscreen more than they are. I'll, I'll consider turning into an adult in the very near future. You got nothing but time. I understand a $36 bottle of... Uh, lotion for your face right now might be out of the budget but i would recommend for all you guys listening just start stealing your girlfriend's stuff especially if it's not scented and go light you don't need much a little bit goes a long way you don't have a girlfriend get a haircut dummy this is gonna end up being a (laughs) two-parter What's that? Oh my God! This is going to be in a two-part podcast. Oh yeah, we got we got to move on, huh? All right, what we are, what are we going to talk about, me? We got well, you know, we got to move on. I got I got seven. I got another three weeks, you know, potentially. So I want to ask you. I mean, you you you've done music. We used to do music together. 
Um, you've segued into a career as I don't I don't even know what my day job is. In terms of film stuff. Well, your day job I don't understand. I don't. My passion has always been more on the artistic side. For some reason or another, I'm I'm never willing to I'm never willing to sacrifice everything for art. I I still like to pay my bills. So uh, I've been learning art like. You mentioned earlier, uh, I started with music. That was largely just financial reasons, right? To make film, it's very expensive. So as soon as I got a job where I could afford to buy film equipment and have the time to do it, I started working on films, writing, directing, producing. The past year or two, I've, I've spent more time helping other people with their films so that it would give me a chance to, to find time to work on a specific angle of filmmaking. So whether as a director of photography or as a sound engineer or helping them in the edit or doing uh, audio engineering or, or audio restoration, you know, I've kind of dug into those individual aspects of it where I'm at a point now where I feel like I could probably put together a pretty good film i haven't done it it's kind of where i started this year at but that's the goal uh i would very much like to put together a feature film sometime in the next year or two and what's (laughs) if i want it on netflix i gotta i gotta put some kind of feline name to it yeah or you gotta get tom segura to be in it or something like that (laughs) i noticed netflix you know i just got netflix back last week um and it came with my updated cable subscription. And uh, man, Netflix has become like, so all the people that used to be on daytime uh, talk shows as guests on your Jerry Springer's or your your Sally Jesse Raphael shows, all those psychos they used to have on there. What Netflix seems to like to do is uh, take those crazy people and send a film crew to go spend three or five years documenting everything they do. Uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty on point. It's the trash network out there i think i know they like to do this thing where they uh they either have uh you know award-winning directors make stuff for them or they go buy some classy film festival work netflix is mostly the the engine for netflix right now is just garbage it's pure volume yeah and i don't mean you know i don't mean it's garbage as in bad quality i mean it's garbage as in like the content the content is trash it's trash television it's a deep dive into like i said like a jerry springer guest <laughs> once in a while like netflix has something and i want to get back to you but we can talk about netflix for a minute once in a while they'll have something that's outstanding and it's new and i think the joe exotic thing just it, i think timing is important with a lot of things right now like if oh, joe yeah. exotic you know if tiger king came out back last fall would it have been as impactful as it is right now no probably not it's crazy and stupid enough for people to really forget what's going on outside and that's nice right um i thought it was like i don't know two or three hours too long if the Uh, whole country wasn't just sitting at home though right now you know and so many things come and go remember a couple years ago no one would shut up about making a murderer it was it was the best show ever it was the best show ever and how 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 nothing is that show? There's nothing in it. Nothing. It's like, all right, you got some hillbillies that maybe committed a crime or maybe they didn't. Great. It reminded me of uh, S Town, the, yeah. the the show about yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, the yeah, it's yeah. like the dramatic murder mystery version of Seinfeld. <laughs> nothing happened. Yeah, nothing happened. So I mean, was there even know. a murder in that? I don't even remember. It just, uh, it, I, they fi- it the guy terrible. pretty much figured out that the dude drove himself crazy because he was doing like um, wasn't giving himself lead poisoning, poisoning or something. Yeah, basically he was giving himself lead poisoning. I'm forgetting the name yeah. of the term of what he was doing. I know it wasn't. Care. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> Whatever the Mad Hatter had, he had. Yeah. Uh, he was doing that. town reminds me of what? So there's this thing in film where, you, you know, and I think it happens a lot in documentaries where you go, we're going to go out there and we're going to chronicle this thing for as long as we can and get to the bottom of the story. And S-Town is not film, obviously. It's, it's audio that's leaning heavily on, on a film documentary style, right? It's taking a, a radio genre and merging it with, like, film technique. The best um, of the podcast series that I've ever listened to was the first season of Crime Town. That was pretty. I haven't amazing. listened to that one. I'll have to check oh, it out. Yeah, it's but amazing. It basically... S Town. S Town is what I would say. You you send out documentarians, and sometimes there's no story, uh, and then you throw it away. It's a lot of wasted time, and you get nothing. But you don't release it. That's what that is. <laughs> yeah. 
that's my primary reason i never work in a documentary uh all the film i work on is is narrative my personal films i i personally like a narrative comedy so some some kind of fiction everything scripted and reality stuff documentary stuff i just stay away from all of it it's to me, it's it's both too easy and it's too risky. Like, I don't want to spend a year trying to get to the bottom of a story just to find out that it's S-Town. <laughs> Do you ever feel watching a documentary that it's kind of exploitive? Like, you got a guy like the guy from S-Town, the lead character was... That dude reminds me of the type of dude that hangs out at the bus station and just harasses you when you come by or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, they were investigating a murder. But to keep going back to that guy who is obviously mentally disturbed and you know right. has mental health issues and then at the end you go oh we just figured out he was doing ah, i gotta figure out what the what it was well it, like almost all documentaries are exploitative by nature take tiger king right you would think this is exploiting hillbillies but really it's not really it's exploiting animal abuse right right because that's the big scandal that's underlying the entire series. That's what they're selling is here's a show about animal abuse. So Netflix is, they're profiting an amazing amount of money right now, I imagine, off of tiger abuse, which right. I'm not an activist, but that's the nature of what that is. Last night I watched Don't Fuck With Cats, which I... I thought was actually much more engaging than Tiger King. Uh, I thought the story was better, uh, if not a little bit predictable. But also the story is driven off of animal abuse and murder and human murder. And it's like, that's all exploitative. And yeah, people are getting rich off of these horrible uh, events and stories. Yeah. I mean, so. is there at this point in terms of documentary style film? I don't know. Something that we just don't know about in society. By Like, yeah, you know, I, I think that most people didn't know the story like regardless of the fact that joe exotic and then all these other people that own tigers are all fucking crazy insane. they're all crazy rednecks right yeah. like animal people <laughs> real, yeah you know that's not really the story but what what type of sane person would even entertain the idea of having 40 tigers sane? right but i mean the, the story of I had no idea. I'll, I'll say, I'll say this. I'll say this about exploitative documentaries like that, though. Next year, we'll probably see like 30 new laws against everything on that show. Right. Yes. So, you know, there is this thing where you make money off of all these crimes, but it also raises an awareness and a disgust. And it, it does motivate the public to rally against it. I see a lot of people saying like, don't watch Tiger King, right? And they link to like animal abuse stories and, and all this stuff. And it's like, they understand what it is. I think you'll end up seeing a lot of good come out of that. And, you know, that's true of all of the films that are exploitative. A lot of times it just kind of rings the bell in your head of what things actually are that you take for granted. I mean, if that documentary didn't come out, there's a good chance somebody who recently watched it would have brought their family to one of those places. Right. There now they're probably going to stay away from it. So. There's one near us in, uh, in York Beach in Maine. They have a couple of tigers and we didn't know that it was this type of place. They have like two tigers. But you go in and the tigers look malnourished. They look like they're on dope. They're just sitting there all day. They're not moving. Dude, you know how many frosted flakes you need to feed a tiger oh it's very expensive they have an insatiable like, appetite for those sugar sugar cornflakes it's out of control they'll eat you out of house and home literally and then they'll eat you i That's mean true. so it, it's just a crazy thing like the, you know uh york maine the york's animal kingdom they have tigers in like these little tiny cages not little tiny but they're, they're much too small for a tiger the tigers right. look pathetic it was sad i looked at my wife and i said yeah we're probably never coming here again and she was like, yeah, no way. You know, even even Amelia was just like, Ugh. you know, it was like it was a pretty sad type of place. It was like what Joe Exotic was doing on a, on a smaller yeah. scale. There's this thing, right? Whenever anybody has a hundred cats, it's going to be both sad and thrilling to find out their story. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's going to be just a horrible affair. It doesn't matter if they're tigers or lions or just house cats. But if somebody has a hundred cats, you're going to find crimes. You're going to find some uh, messed up love stories. I mean, it's it's going to be a disaster. I don't care if it's a little old lady with a hundred cats. A hundred cats is a crime. I think that even, <laughs> if, even if Joe Exotic didn't get big in the cat game, he would have found some other area that where he would have just been ridiculous too. I don't think his star power is any different if he had chosen to 
like go into the music industry. He reminds me of some of the people I know who own record labels. Like he's not. Oh yeah. It's a certain type of personality more than it is just so. Like he, he so he got locked up. Now he doesn't care about having cats. Now he's an animal. That animal. that show would have gotten no airtime without that guy. It's his personality that really sells that show. The um, thing that was sad in that show was at the end they said they said a statistic and there's like they said there was only like four thousand tigers left in the wild or whatever the number is and there's like eight thousand tigers in captivity in the United States or something like that in rich people's houses. <laughs> I mean, for one, that's kind of scary. Like to think that there's all these tigers and like. They talked about the one guy who had a bunch of tigers, and then one day he said, fuck it, and just opened the gate and let him go into the town to kill everybody. People, we don't need tigers. <laughs> I think I'm going to put that one on a bumper sticker. I mean, we just don't. We I don't mean, need I, tigers. Tiger, that's tiger, perfect. That's like, a, that's like a t-shirt. We don't need tigers. I mean, you, you need to make, you can't make a case to me where you can rationalize the ownership of, of a tiger private. I mean... <laughs> Let alone like 40 tigers. People freak out about coyotes and they're these small little dog creatures. I, I can't imagine what would happen if we just started having tigers everywhere. I don't need it. I've come face to face with a coyote before. See them out here now. And it's just not something that we need. We don't need tigers because if, if a coyote <laughs> sees a, a grown man, they're probably going to take off. If a tiger sees me, the tiger's like, I don't, I'm eating them. Like, delicious. Perfect. Let's go. You know what I mean? Like, so let's, uh, let's, let's talk more about film. What's, what's your, uh, what's the process? How do you know that you're working on something that's, how do you, how do you know when it's coming out right? How do you know when it's a waste of time? That's a, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, typically if I'm trying to write something, and the first thing I look for is I, I look for a general overall premise, just kind of an outline of like, I want to see uh, a story about this or a character like this. Right. And then once you kind of have an idea of just, well, first off, I should say this, the, the real art of making uh, films, first off, it's collaborative. So the people you work with, they're going to have a lot of impact on what you end up with. Film goes through a, a series of uh, changes. Uh, initially, you write it and it's it's in this written form and then it's shot in between the writing and the directing um, and shooting of it. Uh, you're going to end up with two different things. Um, which is why writers and directors largely don't get along. And a good director understands that process. And they actually look for opportunities to basically, you try to beat the script, right? So if you wrote something in the script, but you think of something better at the very moment you're filming, it's a better idea to go with the new thing. So long as you trust that it's not going to interfere with something later or earlier in the plot, right? So you got to be careful about, um, you know, that the, the beats throughout the story are going to make sense. But at the same time, you want to keep yourself open to that opportunity to seize on something better. Once you shoot it and uh, it's all captured, you send it over to an editor. And what the editor sees is they see that a lot of the stuff that you thought worked doesn't. Maybe you change something you shouldn't. Maybe it's shot exactly the way it was planned. But it, for whatever reason, when you watch it, it's it does not work. Either it's not as clear in the edit or maybe there's portions in it that don't need to be in there that are kind of messing up the pacing of the story. So the editor will also modify the film. So a lot of times directors and editors also butt heads. Those are pretty much the three phases of going through it. Now the writing phase, all I do while I write is I throw out ideas. I pitch as many ideas as I possibly can. And as I pitch them to myself or to people I'm writing with, we throw out as many as we can. It's, it's generally just uh, how many ideas can we come up with? How many can we throw away? When you find one that is just kind of universal agreement is a great idea, whether it's with a bunch of other people. Uh, if, if you're writing by yourself, you can, you can kind of throw something at somebody. If you can get it across to them in half a sentence and they love it, it's a great idea. If you need to spend minutes explaining it to them, it's an all right idea. If they don't get it, think of something else. They should understand the value in it. And what I what I typically look for is I want to show the audience something that they haven't seen before, or at least present it in a way it's never been presented. I'm trying to give the audience something that is both going to work for them, uh, so they'll be entertained by it, but also something where they'll think back and it'll be the only film they'll ever think of that had whatever that element is. I think that's critical. And the only way you can get there is re really by going through hundreds of ideas. 
is. It's a very tedious process all the way through. Uh, writing films is, is tedious. Directing them is a ton of work. Um, all the people that work on films, all your hands, your cast and crew, they put in long, long days. The average film day is, you know, uh, 15 or 16 hours. And independent films tend to move at a faster clip and for longer hours than than Hollywood films. Um, so they they can be very grueling days. The only thing we try to do for the for the cast and crew is keep them fed. If there's a budget, uh, give them some money for it. But it's uh, it's a challenge all the way through. Filmmaking is the hardest thing I've ever attempted. I've been working on it for about five years now. It was kind of my target for for trying to figure out or how to do it, basically. And I think I'm right about there. Uh, the the next step is going to be the hardest, which is like fully implementing. So I've I've made uh, music videos, I've made uh, dozens of shorts, I've made a couple commercials uh, for work. I've I've done all kinds of uh, training videos, product videos, marketing videos. So you know I've gone through a ton of work at this point, and now I just want to make a, a narrative feature film. My only basic outline for that feature is that it'll. It'll be a comedy, a hundred percent. It'll be, it'll at least be a comedy. Aside from that, I, I haven't gotten there yet. Interesting, interesting. So, when you finally make your feature film, are you planning to kind of tackle it from the bottom all the way to the top as the writer and the director? A write, direct, and edit wow. for sure. And then I want to, I want to be a producer. So, can you tell me what my job would be on that film as the producer? Yeah, just send me a big check. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, perfect. I just basically hey, you're a producer now. I'm looking um, to get paid as the producer, not not be the guy who sends the check as the. I dude, it's the coronavirus. I don't have any money coming <laughs> in right now. Do you have uh, you got any social media? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, well. No, I mean the the social media thing is like I don't believe you need social media until you have a product, and I don't have a product to market. Um, so I have personal social media yeah. things. I don't post anything about my work on there. Typically, it's more just me logging stuff that I'm doing for friends and family. Right. So when industry people usually add me, I, I think I think they realize the mistake pretty quickly. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, what's what's going to happen is for any for anyone who enjoyed this interview, they're just simply going to go on my Instagram, and then they're going to find you pretty instantly. That's true. There, on anyway, Instagram, so. I'm at 45. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's an easy one. And, uh, yeah. and you have any music you're working on right now? So, uh, quarantine special, uh, I've always made, uh, as you know, beats from sampled music. Uh, so I've used, uh, an MPC, uh, 2000 or an ASR 10. Uh, that's been my, uh, go-to over the years about God, four years ago, five years ago, maybe I bought a Yamaha motif, uh, XS just because I saw it real cheap. Um, it's kind of been on my shelf the entire time, but because of the quarantine and because of all this uh, free time, I, I dusted that off and set it up. And uh, I'm starting to learn uh, how to make some keyboard beats, which are kind of corny. But I think when I get it right and uh, get some vocals over it, I think, uh, you know, the nice thing about making music is it, it's a lot less collaborative than film. So it, it kind of satisfies the same urge, but gets out of waiting on other people. With this uh, quarantine stuff, I mean, filmmaking right now is just dead. You're not going to get 10 or 15 or 20 people in a room to work on anything i assume for months from this point so i figure get back to music maybe put out an album i have no intentions of commercially putting out an album but it would probably be posted for free somewhere and it'll probably be really stupid but in the best way possible so awesome well hey i want to thank you for coming on um, thanks for having me obviously thanks I for explaining you. hair yeah, to dude. me Hell yeah, you know. We'll, we'll I apologize to all the listeners that I'm not a barber. Oh, they're going to love it. My people are going to like you anyway, because you were always a hit when you came into this. It's a good shop. You've always been a fan favorite in the barber shop. So, you know, we, this is going to be good, and it's going to give people a little something different to listen to than the barber talk. And I think that it's important for me to have people on here who aren't hair people in our world get so caught up in the hair industry. Whether you're a barber or a hairdresser, we love it. It's all we look at. We've got kind of a tunnel vision when it comes to our career so it is good just to get but you're also in the most social you're also in the most social 
trade in the world, right? So knowing that's a fact. Knowing bits and pieces of different people from all over, I mean, that never hurts, right? I, how many of of my audience ever heard someone go into depth about the process of independent filmmaking before? I guarantee you, almost almost no one has at this level. So you know what? This is something new. People come off quarantine. You got that guy that's in your chair that maybe worked on a film crew at some point. Now you got something to talk to him about. So I I just did you a solid, all you barbers that made it through this one. And uh, there you go. And I thought we dropped some some pretty valuable stuff in terms of the coronavirus. It wasn't necessarily factual stuff, but kind of kind of stuff that yeah. A I'm, lot not, of people uh, I'm not an infectious disease expert or a politician. I. Uh, I just talk shit. So, yeah. You know, yeah. don't take anything to heart. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I want to thank you for everybody listening. I am going to tag guy in the show notes whether he likes it or not and hopefully that's fine yeah he, uh, he uh, gets it together and makes a professional page for all his film work soon because I, I know a lot of my clients up here would would enjoy a lot of the films and stuff that you've worked on before and um, thank you for coming on and uh, you know I wish you much success and I'm excited to be the on your full-length film coming out sometime oh, yeah. next year I'll send you an invoice yeah <laughs> <laughs>